Hi, I'm Jonathan Marks, and this is my fantasy funeral. Imagine you are dead, but you get to design your own funeral. What songs will be played? Who will deliver your eulogy? And where will your remains rest forevermore? This is the scenario presented to my guest today. I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to my fantasy funeral. My guest today is a writer, musician, and broadcaster who grew up in Nashville but left to attend college in New York City. Upon returning to Nashville, he found his hometown less culturally stimulating than his college experience had been. This was Nashville of the late 1980s, a very different city than it is today. But one chance encounter seeing a band play at a local bar pushed his life in a new direction. The band was called Poster Child. They would later change their name to Lamb Chop. He is also well known for his writing, having worked for both Nashville's daily paper, The Tennessean, and the alternative weekly, The Nashville Scene. He has even served as investigative journalist, tracking down the five members of a 1960s Nashville high school garage band in order to secure permission to re-release their long-lost album. And then he wrote the liner notes. When he left the Tennessean in 2008, it was said, quote, you can't find a writer in town more in touch with the artistic soul of Nashville. He is Jonathan Marks. Hello, Jonathan. I'm very glad you could be here. Uh, I am sorry to say we are going to kill you off today and take a look at the funeral you would plan for yourself. But first, I wanted to know how often does your own death occupy your thoughts? I would figure it's kind of an average obsession for most people, right? I mean, I would say my death and the death of those who I love, the deaths of those who I don't know, I'd say it's always there somewhere. You and your wife have a son, I believe. Correct. Did those major life events, such as a marriage or a birth of a child, did those change the way you looked at your own mortality? Uh, yeah, of, of course, certainly. Parenthood does quite a bit in that regard, and um, so does the loss of people you love. Um, so as much as we can try to embrace the notion of impermanence, it's still kind of a hard thing to hang with if, um, if you're a person and you have feelings and urges, you know. I want to talk later about the radio show you host in which you ask your guests to provide the music each week um, for the program. But today it's your turn to choose the music. Uh, we will hear the five songs you have picked to be played during your funeral. Tell me, what is the first song you've chosen? The first song is Jackie DeShannon's Put a Little Love in Your Heart. Um, I think it kind of speaks for itself, you know, um, but it's, you know, it's words to live by or I guess die by. And she was also from Kentucky and that's where my wife is from. So there's kind of a nice little connection there. Take a good look around and if you're looking down.
Jackie DeShannon and Put a Little Love in Your Heart, her single from 1969. Jonathan, you grew up in Nashville. Your father was an English professor, I believe? Uh, yeah, my stepdad, yeah, for uh, over 50, uh, 50 years in Vanderbilt, yeah. Did his profession play into your childhood at all? Were reading and writing strongly encouraged, maybe more so over other activities? Oh, for sure, yeah. There were always grad students, writers, people around the house. I met uh, all kinds of writers and poets and um yeah, so discourse was really important in our family. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, we'd sit down to dinner every night and actually engage in a conversation, um, talk about things in the world. You know, I think uh, um, the importance of analysis um, and inquiry sort of was just always kind of present, you know, in, in, in our household. There was at least some... Uh, you know, in the way that, you know, it certainly um, registered for for my parents and their generation. I think uh, the notion of racial equity was always something that was at least kind of present as uh, as as discourse for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, Perry Wallace, who was a great basketball player, um, uh, went to Vanderbilt. I'm trying to remember. I guess, yeah, he was one of the first students to... Uh, to integrate, I think the first student to integrate the basketball team. But he was he was a student of my dad's and uh, a family friend. Um, there are other folks who came in and out of our home uh, that helped drive some of those conversations, which uh, remain, uh, you know, very present, kind of a, you know, constant, you know, in my in my life right now. You left Nashville and went to college at Columbia University. I did. When you arrived in New York City, was it immediately everything that your hometown was not? Yeah, for sure. It was, I think. And I'm glad that I was there when I was there. Um, Mid-80s, mid to late 80s. Certainly a lot of the really exciting things that had happened there in the 10 years before um, in the worlds of art, music, everything else, were still present in some way, you know. And it was kind of a neat thing to be like walking down the street and be like, oh, there's Allen Ginsberg, you know. And it was a time before New York um, went through the Giuliani years uh, and all the ways in which the city uh, was kind of shifting at that time and continues to shift a lot. So, yeah, it was a pretty exciting time and place to be there. Two friends you made there, uh, Mac McCon and Laura Balance, uh, later started the band Super Chunk and the record label Merge Records. Merge records, but go on to play um, a role in your life after college. What did the two of them mean to you while you were in school as friends? So, uh, so Laura uh, actually, she was a student at UNC uh, in Chapel Hill, but Mac was from Chapel Hill, and um, yeah, I would say Mac was part of a whole circle of of friends. There were, uh, you know, there was kind of like a scrappy group of punk rock kids who hung out um there's a lot of folks from dc there so a lot of connections to the dc hardcore scene um lydia ely was there she um i always sort of remember kind of looking up to her because she was i guess she was a senior i was a freshman but uh the legend about her was that she had worked at haagen as a teenager when henry rollins still lived in uh in D.C., and uh, he was her shift manager at haagen So just the idea of Henry Rollins, you know, scooping ice cream was kind of a, was kind of a beautiful thought. <laughs> yeah, I think um, 
the notion of DIY was something that was very kind of prevalent for a lot of reasons. It was certainly, um, you know, we were into into all of the indie music that was going on at the time. And, you know, I myself was not really that musical other than having played in marching band. So it was more like just getting to be around. That was exciting. Um, but it made me realize that it was something that I wanted in some way to be a part of and participate in. And, um, and that's in some strange way, what I guess did end up, you know, leading to me after I got back to Nashville thinking about, well, okay, how could I do this? I believe your second song choice is by people you also know well and have worked with. Tell me about this song. Again, it's another song that kind of, it, it kind of says it all, although it's, I mean, it, you know, this along with a couple of, I mean, actually several of the songs and I think about it. And, you know, as I was saying to my wife earlier, you know, you know, this, this song list and my response to, to, to your questions is really only reflective. It's more reflective of how I'm living now as much as it is about how I might be when I die. But the William Devon song, you know, the whole kind of crux of the song is about what kind of car you drive, which is sort of a weird thing um, to talk about in terms of like being thankful for what you have. But I think there's a little bit of encoding uh, going on in there about, um, what a person of color might aspire to, you know, as an American. But yeah, so Yola Tango are a band who have played a big part of my life uh, just from getting to know them through playing music. Actually, I guess originally uh, probably connected through Mac McCon. now I think about it. I've had the, you know, great fortune of getting to tour with them in a couple different capacities and uh, to have one of the members of the band be my roommate while they were recording in Nashville. So yeah, there's lots of connections there. And, and also I think for me, generationally and culturally, like there are people who um, I identify with in, in lots of ways and their ability to uh, somehow just embrace uh, music in so many different ways and forms and then to uh, to render it into something that is both uh, informed by all of those influences, but also wholly their own thing, is is pretty pretty remarkable. It, they speak a musical language that that speaks directly to me. So the idea of being able to have that song, which I love so much, and remember hearing them. Uh, rehearse at a sound check once before they had recorded it and having even in that moment realizing that this particular song had a very particular resonance for me in a way that can has you know continued to evolve over time it just kind of made sense to pick their version of that song for lots of reasons though you may not try great big Cadillac Sidewalls, sunroof in the back. You may not try a car at all, but remember, brothers and sisters, you can still stand tall. Just be thankful. Yola Tango and 
and be thankful for what you've got from the little Honda EP. Jonathan, one night in August 1990, as the story goes, you took a friend to a bar here in Nashville called Springwater, and you saw a band playing on stage. Who was this band, and what were your initial thoughts? Uh, the band was called Poster Child, and I knew the drummer because I had worked with him when I was a summer. I had a summer job at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. My impression was they were awesome. I loved them, and they didn't sound like any other local band I had heard at the time. Because, frankly, I'm sorry. I'm just going to be completely honest. Um, Nashville in 1990, I'm sorry. Like, local music just kind of sucked, in my opinion. Um, and apologies to any of you who happened to be in bands then. And particularly if I wrote about your band and just was a total asshole about it, I'm sorry. I was young and stupid. Um, now I'm old and stupid. Yeah, I don't know. There, I, You know, I was... I was uh, really, really obsessed with like the Flying Nun label at the time, and this band didn't sound anything like like those bands necessarily. But there was something about a coalescing of things in the music that seemed to me, at least in that very specific moment, to be akin in some way aesthetically, um, and. Um, that was just, you know, that was just scratching the surface of, of, you know, what the band was and what ended up being. And you soon found yourself playing in this band. Yeah. You know, there was, you know, there's obviously the sort of legendary, you know, singer songwriter culture here. And there's lots of lore about it. But Springwater was kind of like the, the scrappy punk rock version of that without necessarily being punk rock, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I just um, I just uh, I, I dug these folks and um, and got to know uh, the singer and guitar player and songwriter of the band Kurt Wagner, um, and I remember we drove to Memphis to go see Unrest play and like and 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 that was sort of seemed to be kind of the the beginning of uh, you know kind of uh, finding kind of mutual points of interest and connection and uh, and then just over time it just kind of picked up the clarinet that was in my uh, parents' basement that my sister had played in band, and I joined the band. By that time, I guess they soon changed their name to Lamb Chop. That was a few years later. I guess we put out 145, and uh, a uh, there was another band from Chicago called Poster Children, and we got a, a letter from their lawyer asking us to cease and desist, which we did. And there was lots of discussion around what the band name should be. But anyway, it ended up being Lamb Chop. That's a whole other story. But yeah, so that was probably, I guess it was 93. So, yeah. Did you always pretty much write your own parts, come up with what you wanted to play yourself, arrange it? Pretty much, yeah. I feel like, in, yeah, certainly in those early days of Lamb Chop, it was everybody kind of, it was kind of like everybody contributing their parts. And then it would kind of eventually coalesce into something. Sometimes it was pretty chaotic and sometimes it wasn't. Uh, yeah, I guess I did. And I kind of recognized at some point along the way that, you know, I had kind of a limited uh, musical vocabulary and that I tended to express things musically in a very particular way. And I would always try to challenge myself to get out of that, but I don't think I was ever really ever able to do that and so what I had to bring was what I brought and I brought it as long as made sense. You have experienced something that most people listening probably have not. You've performed on a 
network television late night show no, at, yeah. at least twice uh-huh. i would that, say yes that's right um, damn your research is good uh, you were on the conan o'brien show when it was on nbc with lamb chop and then also with the late vic chestnut correct do you have fond memories of those experiences playing on television sure it was pretty exciting yeah i mean it seemed like a big deal i remember one of the times on oh on conan um Maury Povich was also a guest on the show, and after we had wrapped our portion of the show, and I guess everything was winding down for the filming, I uh, took the little nameplate off of Maury Povich's dressing room door and took it home with me, and it was on my bathroom door for a long time. Anyway, (laughs) 90s ephemera. Your third song choice is actually an entire band. You've graciously allowed me to choose the specific song by Sly and the Family Stone. Wouldn't, did you not choose a, one song because you didn't, couldn't pick between their whole catalog? I think, uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, because, again, it's, it's music that uh, from a young age I loved, and it seemed to embody some idealism about what it meant to be, um, you know, uh, a person in America at a particular time, particularly again around the question of race, to have this band that was was um, integrated and that sort of pulled from all of these different kind of musical musical threads to create this thing that was you know uh, was ultimately soul music, but obviously very much informed by rock music, um, and then just you know just that ability to deliver these incredibly uh, sort of simple, sweet, and earnest messages in a way that uh, just uh, uh, sounds completely unforced and beautiful, you know. So, I mean, if it comes down to it, I'm going to say, you know, Stand or Everybody is a Star or Life, you know, any of those songs. I mean, they they all kind of get at it in different ways. Okay, I wouldn't choose the song Life just because that one would really kind of suck to hear at a funeral. You don't have to die before you live. I mean, it would just, like, piss everybody off, you know. I chose Time for Living. That's cool. I'm, I'm totally good with that. see how that one goes. Yeah. Time for living. Sly and the Family Stone from the album Small Talk, a song called Time for Living, a song I found very fitting to be played at a funeral. Jonathan, in 1996, Teen Beat Records, best known as the label home for bands such as Unrest and Versus, released an album that was first issued almost 30 years before, in 1968, by a group called The Feminine Complex. And this wouldn't be especially remarkable, except that the music was written and performed by five teenage girls who lived in Nashville in the mid-1960s. Who were the Feminine Complex, and what part did you play in the story of their rediscovery? 
four of the members of the feminine complex went to Maplewood High School, um, and then there was a fifth member who went to Lytton High School. Uh, they were all on the basketball team, or the one, the four uh, at uh, at Maplewood were all on the basketball team together, um, and. Um, I want to say, I guess they were all in the same class and graduated in 1968. So they formed in 1967, um, no, 66, excuse me, 66. They just, you know, they were, they loved pop music and they wanted to play it. And um, um, I had originally heard about this record that uh, came out on a local label called Athena Records. I'd originally heard about it from... Uh, actually from the band Unrest that they had found a uh, they had actually there was like a dollar a dollar bin in a record store in Harrisonburg Virginia is that the name of the town where James Madison University is anyway somehow there were like all these copies and so like everybody in this little kind of scene of of folks uh, connected with Teen Beat and Unrest they um, loved this record and talked about it all the time and just in passing uh one day, the drummer Phil Krauth said, you know, I think they were from Nashville. You should find out what happened to them. And that began this kind of obsessive uh, inquiry into who was this band. And uh, in part because, I mean, the music really is is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a wonderful album. Uh, but what you hear is largely, uh, you know, it's largely studio musicians. I think it's entirely studio musicians, actually. But you know, when we say studio musicians in Nashville, we're also talking about folks like Matt Gaden, uh, B.G. Adair, the piano player, uh, actually played on the record. I mean, we could spend an hour just talking about the, the obsessive research that I did to try to figure out how to find these women who played on this record because they had all gotten married and their names had changed. Actually, I found the engineer for the record first Lee Hazen he lived out in Hendersonville and he was willing to let me come and and talk to him and he pulled out uh, uh, some real tapes which I guess were actually like you know some sort of you know real real tape transfer of the original masters but in the process he pulled out demos that he uh, had recorded with the band that had never been released it was the label decided i guess they wanted to do something slicker and that was really where where the where the amazingness of their music uh, came out because you were hearing the music of these five teenagers um, and hearing their true sort of voices emerging and it's kind of just so sad to me that that the label didn't see what was so brilliant there, but of course they didn't, you know. This was Nashville. Nashville has always corrupted, uh, you know, musical genius, let's just admit it, even as it creates its own musical genius. Um, that moment of listening to those demos with that engineer who had not listened to them in probably 25 or 30 years was kind of amazing. He actually started crying. Um, yeah, so that... I, that was the beginning of that process. But the songs themselves were, I would say, pretty original oh, for yeah. the 60s and for that age um, yeah. to be written. Yeah, I mean, so to have songs that were written from the perspective of young women, I think was really, uh, uh, really singular. Uh, when you he tracked them down finally, were any of them not surprised that there was a desire to release it, this music from so long ago? Or were they all thinking our music why right now i think they were all pretty surprised yeah i think so i mean in different ways i think they're all individual people and they all had their own individual responses yeah on to another group originally made up of 
kids in high school. Tell me about the fourth song you've chosen. This is just another song I've always loved. Um, and I'm going to actually tie this one back to, um, to someone who um, certainly was a very important person uh, for much of my uh, life here in Nashville. Uh, my uh, former colleague at the Nashville scene, Jim Ridley, who died three years ago, um, around about this time, actually. Um, I remember that a movie had come out. This was in the 90s. Um, and I, I think the movie was called, maybe it was called like Our Song or something like that. And it was about a group of school kids, I think like in Chicago maybe, which makes sense actually. Uh, you know, it was like a indie narrative drama about sort of kids and, and the choices that they make. Um, but this song plays a very particular role in it. It's actually a remake of the song that is that is used in the movie. But but Jim wrote about the movie and he talked about the the particular nature of this song as being one that so perfectly expresses the idea of hope without ever actually acknowledging um, that the thing that you hope for will come you know, things are going to get easier. It's the notion that is that essentially hope is what always uh, is there more so than the thing that we may seek um, in the hoping, you know, and that it, and that there's something both, I think, very beautiful and very painful about that. And so in a way, it seems like a very punishing song to play at a funeral and at, yet at the same time it seems like exactly the song to play at a funeral yeah it's a song that encapsulates a very particular feeling and experience um in a way that feels very uh meaningful to me and and also again if we think about what it means to be black in america we may hear something different in this song than if listened to through the lens of being white people. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. The Five Stair Steps and Ooh Child, their single from 1970. Jonathan, you've expressed your appreciation for the BBC radio DJ John Peel. Oh, yeah. And what he did to shake up the state of radio beginning in the 1960s on through until his death in 2004. Was your interest in radio something that started when you were young? Yeah, I feel like I've always listened to the radio. Um, I have, like, memories of being in the car with my parents and the radio being on and always really being, you know, kind of just, you know, songs always, you know, uh, pop songs of the 70s playing a very, very, you know, kind of having a very um, omnipresent place in my memory, you know, the Hughes Corporation, you know, Rock the Boat, something like that. It was just, you know, yeah, pop music was always there. And the 
the notion of a DJ as this person who is kind of sharing something with you. Uh, yeah, yeah, very much so. You have hosted your own radio show on Nashville's independent station WXNA for a few years now, a show called Transmission. How did you land on the format that you did where you allow your interview guests to bring in the music they want to share? I think I had a notion that as a community radio station that it was important to actually have the voices of the community uh, to be a conduit for the voices of the community. And at first I thought, well, I'll invite people on who I can have really interesting conversations with about music and they'll play cool music and it will be whatever they're into and that'll be cool. Um, but what's happened is over time is I guess I've realized that, okay, no, there's something more important that can happen here, which is uh, let's make sure we're really getting lots of different voices uh, and maybe not centering the white male voice or the white female voice as much. Um, I realized that, uh, that radio and being a DJ, you know, it's just another form of gatekeeping. Um, as much as we think we're sharing, you know, things we love and hipping people to cool stuff, um, recognizing that people's identities get caught up in how they curate and what they curate, I thought, well, I'm going to surrender my ego on this one and see what happens. And it means sometimes playing things on the radio that I think are uncool, but actually, you know, maybe they're not so uncool because it means something to somebody. So, um, so it all just kind of evolved from that. And also to have somebody who, say, grew up in Raqqa, Syria, um, come on the radio and, and talk about their experience as a Syrian-American and, and say, okay, well, so play me some of your favorite music. Before we hear your final song choice, tell me about your vision for your eulogy. You haven't chosen one specific individual, correct? Well, I guess it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, which is um, why center one voice, right? So my hope would be that in this moment, people um, have the opportunity to uh, speak openly and to share something that is deeply painful and deeply personal. And the irony is, and perhaps it's appropriate, like the irony is, is that we move through the world and we tend to, you know, we tend to move through the world in a way that requires us to adhere to all different kinds of, you know, norms and codes of behavior. And yet when we enter into the space of grieving, all of that is uh, disrupted in a major way. So what I would hope is that this type of situation would become an opportunity to truly disrupt all of those norms around um, containing our pain in a way that invites people to think about how they can live out into the world beyond that moment in a way that is less private and more open, but not in like a weird, like, you know, oversharing way. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Jonathan, we've come to your fifth and final funeral song. What is it? Uh, it is Pharaoh Sanders, The Creator Has a Master Plan. To me, Pharaoh Sanders is, is the sound of transcendence, right? What I love about Pharaoh Sanders is that his music has um, 
it has all of these qualities that are both uh, beautiful, but also there's always these parts that get really like very uh, thorny and gnarly and uh, and dissonant and explosive. And it, it is a 32 minute song. Would do you envision? Would you like people to sit there and Fuck think yes. about you for 32 minutes? <laughs> yes, I want everybody to fucking sit there and just be like, "What the fuck is he doing? Like, what? Why?" I mean, everybody will have their own reaction to it, right? But, um, but here's the thing: that this is a piece of music that is a journey, right? Uh, life is a journey. Grieving is a journey. Like it is, it is process. It is something that we constantly move through. Yeah, there's probably something a little pranksterish in this, in that, you know, people would it be brought into this piece of music by something that sounds very um, beautiful and spiritual and soulful, and then it would go somewhere that not everybody was prepared for. But also where it goes is in some, like, just in purely aesthetic terms is something that I understand on a kind of cellular level. Like I can't understand it. Like uh, in musical terms, I can't analyze what's happening there, but I can tell you that like on some kind of fundamental level, I understand it. Right. Um, That it is a language that computes for me. And so it would be an opportunity for people to consider what that language is and that if I had the ability to speak through music that I would speak this way sometimes. A small piece of the epic work that is Pharaoh Sanders, the creator has a master plan from his album Karma, Jonathan Marx's final fantasy song choice. I believe you have an idea about what you would like to happen to your body after you die. You favor cremation. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and why that over a burial? Is it just obvious? I would think so. I mean, don't we take it up enough space as it is when we're living? And you don't have any specific spot where you would like your ashes to be end up? Man, this is complicated. I like, I mean, every day I actually like, there is a box that sits on a file cabinet in, in, in a closet in my house that contains my mom's ashes. Um, we don't, we haven't really, you know, we can't do anything with them right now because it's not the right time. It's something, it's, it's a strange thing to be like, oh, yeah, this is what remains of my mother sitting here in a little black box with her name and social security number on it. Um, there is something, you know, strangely prosaic around the uh, 
the burning of human remains and then packing them up for somebody to figure out what the fuck are you going to do with them, which is how my mom would have said it. Um, I don't see this box that has my mom's ashes and think, oh, it's mom, you know. I mean, there's more, there's more of my mother coming out of my mouth right now than is in that box, right? Certainly. I think that is the important thing. Yeah. Well, this has been such a delight. Jonathan Marks, thank you for taking us through your fantasy funeral. Thank you. My Fantasy Funeral is brought to you by We Own This Town. Full versions of the songs chosen today can be heard on our Spotify playlist. Find out more at myfantasyfuneral.show. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening.